All right. Good morning. Well, it's good to be here. As has been said, my name is Mwindula Mbewe. I believe my father was here uh, not too long ago. Yes. So I am his, uh, I'm his son. I uh, come from Hillview Baptist Church, as has been mentioned, a plant like yours that we started in 2019. And uh, upon installing three men in the eldership in the month of April, we have now been wind off. We are now on our own as uh, a church. I am married. My wife is Namundi, and we have a daughter together. Well, let me begin by expressing my gratitude uh, to be here. I uh, recently invited a friend of mine from Zimbabwe to come and preach at my church. And I was always surprised because when he would come, I would look forward to the fellowship with him. I would want to take him to places. And he seemed very tense uh, when he would come. And uh, now I feel how he was feeling. You know, it's a huge responsibility for people to fly you into their country to say, preach to us. And so I feel that uh, burden, and I pray that um, you benefit from the preaching of the word. I really enjoy your pastor's preaching, Pastor Butu. I actually think he's one of the best preachers in Africa. <laughs> His wife is shocked. <laughs> yeah, when I start listening to his sermons, I can't turn them off. And I say, I'll just listen to five minutes. Before long, I've listened to the whole sermon. I felt to shut it off. And uh, in fact, once I was so moved by his message, I don't know if you remember, I sent him a text on WhatsApp. He never replied. But... Uh, I sent him a text to say, wow, pastor, that was such a fantastic message. So it's good to see the work here, see what God is doing here. And it's my prayer that you come alongside Pastor Butu and um, support him in uh, the work that he's doing here. Uh, we, we, we are very aware back home in Zambia about the spiritual situation uh, in Nigeria, especially the teaching that goes on here, uh, the false teaching. I'm sure you understand it even more than we do back home. And so we really view a work like this, which is uh, based on the truth of God's word, which does not seek to extort people, but give to people God's truth. We really think that's important. And you might feel like you're very small and you're not having much of an impact, but uh, you know God does big things through small groups of people, isn't it? And so I would really want to encourage you to remain faithful and look to the Lord. He will certainly uh, do a great work through you in this country. Well, brothers and sisters, we begin today by addressing the question, what is sanctification? As we will see as we proceed through the day, uh, particularly in the last session, sanctification is a vital subject, very important. 
Our text in answering the question, what is sanctification, will be 1 John. So please turn there, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. The word itself, sanctification, is not found in this text, but the point the Apostle John makes certainly serves as uh, to give us a good grasp, a, a good understanding of what sanctification is. I like this passage, and I've chosen this passage because it not only tells us what sanctification is, it practically shows us what uh, it is, what, what it looks like. And it even goes further to show us how important it is, why it is vital. Let's read the text, 1 John 3. Uh, we'll be in verse 1 to verse 10, but let me begin reading from verse 28 of chapter 2. 1 John 2, 28 down to 3, 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, and this is where I think sanctification is, purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. This passage tells us what sanctification is 
And it tells us how important it is, that it is indispensable in the life of a believer, that God's design that his children is that his children would be sanctified. What is sanctification? The word sanctify literally means to make holy. It means to separate something in order for it to be consecrated to God. There is only one thing that stops us from being consecrated to God, and it is sin. And so sanctification is our separation from sin, our ongoing separation from sin. Now, you might be surprised, maybe you will not be surprised, but you might be surprised that not everyone holds firmly to that idea. The vast majority of people who call themselves Christians do not regard their separation from sin as a high priority. Indeed, many continue in a lifestyle and habit and pattern of sin while still calling themselves Christians. That's not a big deal. It's not an issue for them. But we see in this passage that it's an issue for John, the Apostle John. It is this very issue that the author is seeking to deal with. It is a great misunderstanding of who God is to think that God can make someone his child and not separate them from sin. Sanctification is the idea that God is not merely concerned with changing your destination from hell to heaven, but he is also concerned about how you get to heaven. God is not merely concerned that you escape hell. He is also concerned about the spiritual quality of life that you live on your way to heaven. We can miss this because when we are sharing the gospel or when we are thinking about the gospel, we often emphasize that the gospel is how we are saved from the penalty of sin, but we don't really talk about how the gospel saves us from the power of sin. When I was traveling here, I uh, encountered in Ethiopia a young white male. And uh, as he's the one who came up to me and uh, we, we got on the elevator together uh, where we spent the night in Ethiopia. And he said, you know, my name is so-and-so. And he told me he works in mining. And I told him, uh, he said, what do you do? So I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, you're a pastor. Uh, I've actually just undergone a spiritual awakening. That's what he told me. I uh, was in India before I came here to Africa, and there I underwent a spiritual awakening. And he said it happened in a Hindu temple. And so I said, oh, obviously the Lord wants me to share the gospel with him because uh, he's opened up about his spiritual life. 
And so I uh, attempted to, to share with him the gospel, but this was someone who did not have a background in uh, Christianity. In fact, he told me for him, all religions are the same. So Hinduism will lead you to God, Christianity will lead you, they all work out the same way. And so I said, well, I'm a pastor. Obviously, I'm a Christian and I preach uh, the gospel. I preach about the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what I believe. I said, may I uh, suggest to you why Christianity is superior to all other religions? And he said, go ahead. I said, all other religions basically do one thing. They tell the person, that you can attain salvation, attain heaven, appease and please God by doing your best and living your best. Christianity flips that on its head. The message of Christianity is that you cannot live your best. You cannot do your best. That there is nothing you can do to appease and please God. That your best works are not impressive to God. So don't even bother trying to please God by the little things that you do and by your obedience. Christianity says you can't get there. And Christianity's solution is that God has to come down himself to deal with that problem. He must leave heaven himself to deal with that problem. And he does so by sending his son, God in the flesh, to die for your sins so that you don't have to pay for your sins yourself. And God is not unjust that he should punish Jesus for your sins and punish you as well for your sins. If he punishes Christ for your sins, then you are good. The anger and wrath of God is averted. That's what I shared with him. You can tell me how well I did after the session to try and sell Christianity and what Christianity is. But as I went back thinking about it, I said it's interesting that we never, or we rarely talk about the power of sin when we're presenting the gospel. We talk about the, the, uh, the, the fact that salvation delivers us from the penalty of sin. What John does here is he tells us that no, Salvation is not just God dealing with the penalty that awaits us if we do not turn to Christ. It actually also deals with the power of sin. And to disregard salvation as also being a rescue from the power of sin is to miss the gospel. And that's what we see in this passage. In the words of Ephesians 1, believers have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's not just about changing your destination. It's that God gives us every spiritual blessing along with that. The first thing we see in the text about sanctification is that sanctification is a work of purification. I alluded to this. Look at verse 1 down to verse 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be 
has yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John affirms that children of God are not what they will be. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. This has happened. We are God's children. But don't think this is it. Don't think that because you are a child of God, you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ now that that's it. No. There is something that we are looking to that we will be. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. Verse 2. But we know that when he, Jesus Christ, appears at his second coming, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Don't think you have arrived. You will arrive when he appears because when you see him as he is, then you shall be as he is. We are not yet there, but it will happen. So what about the in-between? What about this period before he appears? That's glorification, what we will be when we become like him. What about the in-between? Well, there's sanctification. Purification, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hold on, John. You said that what we will only that we will only be like Jesus when he appears. Right? That's what you said in verse 2. Why is it that in verse 3 you now say that those who have this hope, what hope? This hope of glorification, this hope that when he arrives, I will be like him. When he appears, I'll be like him. Why does you why do you say now, Apostle John, that this hope, those who have this hope, purify themselves as Jesus is pure. Well, this is the ongoing work of purification, of sanctification. There is an in-between work that happens between what we are now, between and what we shall be. There's purification that happens. We do not just sit around and wait for what we will be. We are purified by our hope that we shall be glorified. He says that the one who hopes in this way purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Jesus is utterly pure, utterly holy, utterly righteous. And we embark on this journey of being purified as we await that final state that we'll be in when he appears. Sanctification is this purification process. Being made holy and righteous as Jesus is holy and righteous. We know that the two are different. 
Because first John chapter 1, John tells the Christians that they are sinners. Look at first John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, he's speaking to Christians here. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. We are only lying to ourselves if we say we have no sin. No, we are on a journey of purification because we are sinners. So before we get to heaven when he appears, we'll be and we'll finally be like him. We go through this process of purification. In fact, in reading 1 John, it's pretty clear that John is trying to draw a distinction. There, are, there, there were those who gave a pass to sin. All our sins are dealt with in Jesus. So what's the big deal? And John argues that while our sin is dealt with in terms of its penalty, we won't have to pay for our sins. That does not mean we remain the same until Jesus comes. No. Those who hope in the glorification that they await purify themselves as Jesus is pure. Work is done along the way. I think the question we should ask is why? To what end? Why has God in his design of the Christian life included this in-between work. We are already heading to heaven. The penalty of sin has been averted. It's been placed on Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken our punishment. What is the reason for this imperfect purification process? Why bother? When he appears, we'll be like him. Why not just sit back and not worry about being sanctified and purified and being made holy? After all, it's imperfect. No one can say they are without sin in this life. Why can't we sit back, relax, and await the inevitable? Have you ever thought about it? What is the purpose of us going through a purification that is never going to attain perfection? Why not just wait for glorification? Why not leave us in our sin and to our sin and then we experience glorification when Jesus appears? Why put us through this frustrating process? Are there any frustrated Christians in the house? That when I look, uh, I was listening to RSS Pro on this uh, subject of sanctification. It says, you know, it's amazing. Sometimes I look in the mirror I look at myself in the mirror and I, can, I, I say, how am I still after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of being a Christian still struggling with sin? Why put us through that process? Through these ups and downs. That's the second thing we see from this text about sanctification. Sanctification is the assurance of our salvation. We work through verse 4 to verse 10, but for now, let me just read verse 10. 1 John 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Which is God. No, is the one who does not love his brother. Would you imagine a world 
without sanctification. Would you imagine a world where Christians remain exactly sinful as they were when Jesus found them? Maybe even get worse. Imagine a world where the church looks exactly like the world. The people of God look exactly like the people of the world. They sin just like and as much as the people of the world. They live exactly like the world. What would that world look like? What would that church look like? To begin with, and this is the point John makes, we would never know who the real Christians are. We have enough trouble as it is, even with sanctification. Identifying those who are truly believers can be a very difficult task. Very difficult in certain instances. It can take quite some time. The world exactly like unbelievers. Believers exactly like unbelievers. We would never be able to tell. God would be able to tell. But we would never be able to tell. But because of sanctification, we can tell who the Christians are and who the Christians aren't. What, is, what evidence is there? Well, John says a couple of things. Those who are true believers do not make a practice of sinning. Verse 6, 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We need to be careful in this section because some translations say no one who abides in him sins. Giving the impression that those who abide in him are perfect. They never sin. It is clear as we pointed out in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 that John says Christians sin. It's clear in the context of the book that John is not trying to suggest that Christians become perfect. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is why I'm writing to you. This is a, an impetus. This is my way of urging you not to sin. But if anyone does sin, he knows. It's possible for a Christian to sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, it is clear in the context of the book that John does not believe in perfectionism. The idea that when you become a Christian, you will not sin any longer. That's not his argument. His argument is that Christians do not, real believers do not keep on sinning. What does that mean? Very important and this is why I like First, uh, first John to talk about sanctification because it actually tells us practically someone who's sanctified, what do they look like? Well, they don't keep on sinning. 
this purification to be pure like Jesus is, is not sinless perfection. It is clear that sinless perfection will only happen when Jesus appears. He said that in verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. What we shall be, we'll be like him when he appears. That is when we will be like him, when we see him as he is. For now we go on this purification called sanctification where we sin, but we do not keep on sinning. What does that mean? It means that while a Christian may sin, and while a Christian will sin, listen carefully, the Christian doesn't sin as a lifestyle. The Christian does not sin as a way of life. The Christian does not sin in a habitual way. The Christian does not just give in to sin with no battle, no fight. No, the Christian wages war against sin. The Christian does not lie down and let sin walk all over them. The Christian does not give full vent and expression to their sin. That's what John means when he says that Christians do not keep on sinning. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. Romans 6, 11, so you also must consider, listen to these words, yourselves dead to sin. How many of you, when you were breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend as a teenager, you told them, you are dead to me? That's the Christian answer. Consider yourselves dead to sin. So you must consider yourselves dead sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What, what, what does that look like? Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law but under grace. Have you seen the words that Paul is using? Dead to sin. Sin will not reign. Sin will not have dominion. This is what it's about. This is what John's talking about when he says the Christian does not keep on sinning. Does sin reign in you? Does sin have dominion? over you? Does it have power over you? That's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not Christianity. No. The Christian is dead to sin. 
None of these ideas convey a complete break from sin, but they convey the fact that there's a great divorce that happens between one who is a child of God and sin. The love affair with sin is broken. The spell of sin which binds is broken. Some of you men would never confess to your wife that actually uh, upon marrying her sometimes you still remember one or two ex-girlfriends. The men are looking at me like, not me. Not me. <laughs> the men are not moving. Some of you who, who know this, that you, you, there, there are those, in fact, it's something which I, I'm actually finding, you know, dealing with, with, with people, that one of the things that, now we are diverting, but anyway, one of the things that uh, causes men to struggle in their marriage is actually there's still, they're still sort of comparing. You know, if I, so had I married my ex, you know, she would not have been giving me these problems that this one is giving. Should have been doing these things which this one doesn't do and so on and so forth. But the point is this, that even though a man may remember his ex-girlfriend, he's not tied to her. He's tied to his wife. She is his passion. She is the one that he, he gives all his attention to, all his affection to, all his love to. There's been a shift from whoever else he was with and now it's just this woman. Sin will have no dominion. Sin will not reign. In fact, in verse 3, 7, there's an amazing statement here. Again, showing that this is not about perfection. This is the fact that sin no longer reigns, righteousness reigns. Sin no longer dominates, righteousness dominates. 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. An amazing statement. It doesn't say whoever is righteous is righteous. Whoever is perfect is righteous as he is righteous. No. Whoever practices righteousness. Whoever has in them righteousness reigning. Righteousness dominating. It isn't perfect, but it reigns. It dominates. They are slaves of righteousness. That person is righteous, though they are not perfectly righteous. And, and how righteous are they? Verse 7, they are as righteous as he is righteous. It's not about perfection. It's about practice. It's about what dominates. It's about what reigns. It's about the habit of it. Righteousness is your way of life. If righteousness is your way of life, though you sin from time to time, you are righteous as he is righteous. You do not need to be perfect here on earth to know that you are righteous as Jesus is righteous. 
You do not need to be perfect in order to know that you are perfect as Jesus is perfect. You are perfect as Jesus is perfect if you practice righteousness. And that is sanctification. It is the ongoing battle for righteousness. It is not perfection. In verse 8 of John 3, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those of the devil practice sin. Those who are righteous, like Jesus is righteous, practice righteousness. That's a distinction. And that's what sanctification looks like. Those of the devil are not all sinful without any acts of righteousness. They do do good things from time to time. They can tell the truth. They can remain faithful to their wives and their husbands. They can give to the poor. They can tithe in the church. They can serve in the church. They can do some good things, but they cannot consistently, habitually live in righteousness. They are of the devil. Likewise, true believers can sin. They can even backslide and fall back into a pattern of unrighteousness, but they can't stay there. They may destroy their testimony and begin living in wickedness. They may stumble and fall and lose their way. They may lose that resemblance to the image of Christ, but they cannot continue that way. They cannot continue practicing sin. They will seek restoration and resume the life of sanctification. It's not just the impact that it would have on the world and the church if there was no sanctification. It's also the impact it would have on ourselves. And that's why I began our reading from chapter 2 of 1 John verse 28. Look at the end of chapter 2 verse 28. Uh, the end of chapter 2 in verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Without sanctification, we would all be quivering in our boots at the appearance of Jesus Christ, along with the wicked, along with those who have not been saved from the penalty of their sin, would have no confidence, would shrink from him in shame. We would not be able to face Jesus at his return if there was no sanctification. How do we know who is saved and who isn't part, who isn't apart from sanctification? It is not possible to tell. How do we know who has truly believed and who hasn't apart from sanctification? It's not possible to tell. Talk is cheap. Sanctification is God's gift in order that we would know who are the children of God. And that's what verse 10 says. By this it is evident. The third and final thing we see 
I mentioned, I made this statement earlier that sanctification is, is, is really important for the gospel. Sanctification is the proof of our gospel and our savior. It's the justification to throw in another big word. Sanctification is the justification of our gospel and our savior. And we see this in verse 5 and in verse 8. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Here it is, the reason the son of God appeared. What's the gospel? It's not just about the penalty. It's about the power over sin. Salvation from the power of sin. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. While we have said that sanctification is for our benefit, it is for the Lord as well. As all things should be. All things should be the, to the glory of God. To the glory of his name. Without sanctification, the gospel message would be the mockery of the world. And not just the mockery of the gospel message, but the mockery of Christ himself. We know that Jesus does not only deal with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin also. And we know that because of sanctification. This is the point John is making in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus' mission was to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1 verse 21, she'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Not just from the penalty of their sins, but from the sin themselves. The sin itself. Sanctification demonstrates the gospel message. And it gives it credence. It would be an ironic message that claims that Jesus came to take away sin and the person who's saying Jesus came to take away sin is living in their sins. But it would not just be an ironic message, it would also be an ironic savior. And that's what we see in verse 8. B. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the evil one. And yet the works of the devil continue in the lives of believers. How? What would that say about our Savior? No. Christ came to take away sin. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And if he ended at merely dealing with the penalty of sin. No, Jesus, uh, Father, I've died for them. They don't need to be punished in hell. Let's go. And do our own thing and uh, enjoy ourselves. We'll pick them up when I reappear. How they live is no concern of ours. It would cause havoc to the gospel. And bring it to disrepute and impugn his name. The gospel message and the savior of the gospel are justified, approved by 
sanctification in the life of those whom he saves. We sing that song. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He just doesn't cancel the sin. I don't have to pay for it on judgment day. No, he breaks its power. He breaks the power of counseled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Let me end with some applications. First, sanctification is a need. It's not a want. Sanctification is not optional. It's indispensable. If there is no sanctification, do not assume that there is salvation. In fact, sanctification is part of the salvation package. Secondly, sanctification is not glorification. 1 John 3 verse 2 is glorification. 1 John 3 verse 3 is sanctification. If we could attain perfection here on earth, then verse 2, which talks about our coming glorification of 1 John chapter 3 would not be there. It would be redundant there. And we could do away even with chapter 1 entirely. Sanctification is not glorification. It is an error to try and get out of sanctification what we get from glorification. The power of Jesus and the gospel message. Do you know that we won't manage to share the gospel with everybody? It's not possible. Will you manage to share the gospel with all your neighbors, all your workmates, all your relatives? It's not possible. But there's a way that you can share it while your mouth is shut. In fact, that's the emphasis of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter. When he's pleading with them. I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted. But please, the one thing is he doesn't say no. Go to a papa to so that he prays for you and the case bind those who are trying to make you. No. You suffer. That's his message. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult as you are suffering, but don't compromise in your life. Don't do it. Make sure you live a holy life. Why? So that they may see you and glorify your Father in heaven. And then what does he say? Be ready. Because they will come and they will ask for the hope that is in you. Why is it that you're being persecuted by the boss? Boss is after you. You've done nothing wrong. And yet you never retaliate. Never insulted him. You always serve him. You always respect him. You work harder than anybody. There's something different about you. 
Yes, we all say we are, Christ, we are Christians here. But you, there's something about you. And Peter says, be ready to give them a reason for the hope that is in you. Some questions are powerful testimony for Jesus Christ and the gospel. And finally, by way of application, sanctification is God's commitment to deal with the power of sin. Isn't it true that sometimes there's a sin that so easily entangles in the life of a believer? You might be sitting here and there's just a sin that seems to get the better of you. Though you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in him for your salvation, don't lose hope. Don't be tempted to think that you will never be able to overcome that sin. Jesus came not just to deal with the penalty of sin, but with the power of sin. Wage war against that sin. Do not give up. Do not succumb. Because he breaks the power of counseled sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that shows us what sanctification is and how important it is. We pray that those who are believers here would have a real and deep concern that what they claim in having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ would be seen and worked out in their lives. Then great bounds all the more. We can continue in our sin. We can enjoy our sin. We can give our sin a pass. But may we be a people who wage war against sin. Understanding that nobody who practices sin is a child of God. So write these things on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.